we last met, Caesar had triumphed over his once ally and son-in-law, Pompey the Great. And minus a few stragglers, mainly Pompey's son, Quintus Sextus, Caesar was now unquestionably the first man in Rome. Many members of the Senate remained in exile on their country estates, determined not to return to Rome until Caesar had been deposed and punished. But many more were coaxed back into the city when Caesar promised no reprisals for anyone who had not supported him. He also spent some time installing a puppet government in Egypt, that crucial Egyptian grain again, under the reign of Cleopatra VIII, with whom he had a son, Caesarian. Then, upon returning to Rome, Caesar set about reforming the Republic in his image. He was initially appointed dictator by the Senate for a term of 10 years. Dictator in the Roman sense meant something slightly different than how we use it in the modern day. In the Roman sense, it meant a temporary magistrate who was given extraordinary powers to restore order to the Roman government after a time of crisis. So the closest parallel would be like the extraordinary powers that a president has during uh, martial law. Unlike previous dictators such as Marius and Sulla, Caesar did not call a prescription list. And even though the senators who were staunch in their opposition to him, so going so far as to raise armies, retained their lands, incomes, and positions. Caesar's natural open-handedness was generally well-received by the plebs, but it had the opposite effect on the patricians. They felt like Caesar was mocking them with his forgiveness, and some, like Cato, took their own lives rather than live under Caesar's pardon. The bulk of the boni, as the patrician opposition would call, did not take their own lives, but they did continue to plot to end Caesar's. But Caesar, whose true gifts were in administration, seemed unconcerned with these things as he set about implementing his various reforms. He had ambitious plans aimed at three things, centralizing Roman authority, suppressing armed resistance in the provinces, and reducing the amount of graft and corruption in the Roman administration. Perhaps as a signal that he was aware that the senators who had not returned to Rome were plotting against him, he first focused on suppressing armed resistance in the provinces. As I stated earlier, provincials were subject to Roman hegemony and watched the wealth of their lands enrich Rome itself, but were denied Roman citizenship citizenship and thus the opportunity to also gain from the largesse of Rome. Caesar sought to address this in a fashion that would not be considered radical by today's standards, but was arguably considered radical in his time. He extended Latin rights throughout the Roman world, which still meant male landowners, but no longer meant male landowners in Italy only. He also enfranchised provincial magistrates to collect taxes directly rather than through Roman intermediaries, which meant that more of those tax monies would be spent inside the provinces, improve the provinces instead of enriching some governor who would be gone in a year or two. And then he called a census, which forced a reduction in the grain dole, mainly affecting middle-class equestrians who had the means to buy their own grain but use the free grain dough to hold grain, hoard grain in lean times and sell it at a premium. The free grain dough was an idea that began with Gracchus, was implemented by Marius, undone by Sulla, and then reenacted by Clodius Pulcher when he renounced his patrician rank and became a tribune of the plebs in 59 BC. 
Although Clodius's political career ended ignominiously, the grain dough had become an essential feature in the increasingly unstable republic, and no politician, no matter how conservative, would dare rescind it, lest they be dragged from their homes in the middle of the night by angry, hungry mobs and torn apart. Fun fact about the grain dough, it's one of the earliest recorded forms of social safety net, so it was like snap for Romans, I guess. The reduction in the grain dough was important because it enabled Caesar and the overall bureaucracy to see how many wealthy people had been exploiting it. And once the corruption and graft was weeded out, the government was able to dole out larger shares of grain to the poor people in Rome. After enfranchising the provinces, thereby taking a substantial amount of power out of the hands of the senatorial class, Caesar set about creating a strong central government in Rome. In this, more than anything else, he laid the groundwork for Rome's eventual transition from republic to empire. Authority in the Roman Republic was knit together by a complex web of tradition, faith, codified law, and when all else failed, brute force. Caesar sought to bind up all of these systems under himself as a means of centralizing power. He took on various religious titles so as to control the augurs and various priesthoods in Rome who had their own form of power over the masses, and also to eliminate any cults that might threaten or call into question his authority, like Christianity later did with the emperors. He used bribes and the threat of violence to sway senators and tribunes alike, as well as their various bureaucratic retainers, to ensure that the codified laws were in line with his vision as well. And although Caesar never prescribed anyone, his veterans of his legions were installed in local offices all over Rome, some with gangs of their own, who would do Caesar's bidding if he provided enough coin. And some would do it for free off the strength of their love for Caesar's leadership and the gifts that he often gave to the plebs. So while Caesar rarely carried the big stick in Rome itself, everybody knew he was good in the streets. The Sabora had never forgotten Caesar, and Caesar had never forgotten them. Aside from his administrative skills, Caesar had always been a public relations wizard, knowing how to strike the right chord with the people at the right time. Perhaps this was a skill he learned out of necessity because once Caesar had secured his laurel crown and ceremonial toga, he began making PR mistakes that the younger, more astute Julius Caesar would have seen through. While Caesar maintained a pretty good rapport with the plebs and strove to repair his image with his fellow patricians, he and his family always had the sense that they were only being received in society's best homes because the owners were afraid of what might happen if they were not. For all the mood was icy between the Senate and Caesar, they continued to lavish him with honors, and it was here that Caesar's characteristic wariness began to fail him. After years of being hunted, denigrated, and always on the defensive, Caesar was ready to be loved and celebrated for all the good work he was doing, and he was awash in the near-universal praise he was receiving. But the public tide began to turn a little against him when he held a triumph for his victory at the Battle of Munda in March 45 BC. This was a battle against Pompey's son Quintus, and it was the last of the opposition left to Caesar's rule over Rome. Many Romans of all social classes thought it was crude to hold a triumph, celebrating a victory over fellow Romans. At least this is what Plutarch says. 
He was also bestowed with increasingly more titles, some that had not been used since the days of the kingdom of Rome. He began wearing his imperator's robes to the Senate, which were dyed a rich purple, the color of kings. And when a man was arrested for yelling, all hail King Caesar, as his palanquin passed by, Caesar had the man let out of jail. The last drop of sun was when an elderly member of the Senate came to speak with Caesar and he did rise to greet the fellow senator, but remained seated on his golden stool that he had made for the princeps or first citizen. Cassius Longinus was able to use this incident as proof positive that Caesar was trying to make himself a king, and with this his fate was sealed. The night before Caesar was to address the Senate on 15 March 44 BC, Mark Antony had heard word of a plot against Caesar and went to warn him, but was unable to reach him that night. He tried again in the morning, but Gaius Trebonius intercepted him just outside the theater of Pompey. When Caesar entered the theater, Tilius Simber presented him with a petition to allow Simba's exiled brother to return to Rome. As he presented Caesar with the petition, a crowd of senators began to circle around Caesar, presumably to support this petition. Simba then grabbed Caesar's toga, which Caesar tried to pull away, crying out, It's the quidum vs. This is violence. Then Servilius Casca tried to stab Caesar in the neck, but failed, and Caesar grabbed his arm and shouted, Casca, you villain, what are you doing? Casca then yelled out in Greek, Adelphi, Bothai, brothers, help. And within moments, an entire group of senators descended on Caesar, stabbing him 23 times. According to the Roman historian Eutropius, 60 senators were involved in this plot. However, only one wound was fatal, a stab to his heart. Many historians have argued over what Caesar's last words were. Suetonius states that he yelled out in Greek, Kaisu Technon, which translates to, and you, child, to Brutus Marcus, or sorry, Marcus Brutus, to whom Caesar had always had a fatherly relationship and with whose mother Caesar had carried on an affair from the time his first wife, Cornelia, died. The line made famous by Shakespeare, et tu Brute, then die Caesar was artistic license borrowed from Suetonius. After killing Caesar, Brutus and Cassius tried to address the people of Rome to tell them that they had been freed from Caesar's tyranny, but they were greeted with stunned silence. The lower and middle classes of Rome had seen great gains to their lives under Caesar's rule, and they were enraged at the idea of having all those reforms taken away from them, as well as unsure of what the future might hold. In the past, when a ruler died, a strong man died, then two or three more would vie for supremacy and there would be bloodshed in the streets of Rome. And they were not ready to go back to that after so many years of peace and tranquility with Caesar. Brutus and Cassius were driven from their homes by mobs and Mark Antony capitalized on the grief of the city and gave a stirring public eulogy that whipped the masses into an anti-patrician frenzy. He was a little let down, though, when Caesar's will was read and his young nephew Gaius Octavius was named his heir, making the young man the wealthiest man in Rome, and if he sought it, the most powerful. Octavius was a shrewd and thoughtful young man, not naturally inclined to be martial, but he had been raised close enough to Caesar to absorb some of his popular sentiments, 
although with a bit more practicality. Octavian also knew what measure of a man Mark Antony was and remained closely aligned with him until Caesar's murderers were dealt with. Then Antony and Octavian ended up vying with one another for supremacy, much in the same way that Pompey and Caesar had decades before. And Octavian ultimately won out in a naval battle off the coast of Alexandria, where Mark Antony and Cleopatra VIII, who had become lovers when Antony chose Egypt as his base of power, committed suicide. The reign of Octavian, later known as Octavian Augustus, saw the Roman Republic officially become an empire with the boundaries of Rome reaching their zenith through his long reign, including Britannia and Germania, up to the banks of the Lower Rhine River. Octavian completed the last of Caesar's goals, which was to make Rome into one cohesive unified state, with all those subject to Roman law being citizens, whether they held land in Italy or the provinces. Although Julius Caesar was not the first general to transfer his skill set from the battlefield to the halls of political power, his impact was felt both immediately after his death and for the remainder of the history of Rome and subsequent empires to come. From the name Caesar, we now have the words Kaiser and Tsar. And from his conquest of Gaul, we now have the French, Catalan, Franco-Provencal, Romanche, Friulian, and Latin languages, the oil. Uh, and from his administrative reforms, we have some of the cornerstones of modern law, such as the enacting of law through jurisprudence rather than legislation. Caesar's desire to see a unified and centralized Roman state with one system of laws greatly influenced later European legal tradition, including English and Germanic common law, which then later influenced the American founding fathers. Next episode, we will delve into the life and times of the great Japanese shogun, Tokugawa Ayasu, and discuss the ways that he was both similar to and different from Julius Caesar. Join me next time for more. You